Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have with me Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. As always, uh, we have a great discussion ahead. Elliot, I'll go to you first. What do you have for us this week? All right, great. Thanks, John. Hello, everyone. Um, this week, I wanted to talk about it. At the very end of last week, I mentioned this paper, Myopic Loss Aversion and the Equity Risk Premium by uh, Shlomo Benarti and Richard Thaler. And I think it's a really interesting paper, and it's something that's pretty important to think about. And I wanted to tie it to something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is the lumpiness of returns in equity markets. Um, so myopic loss aversion is this general idea that the uh, more people look at the prices of the stocks in their portfolio, the worse they do, and therefore the equity risk premium exists because people react to price. And you know the the I guess the beginning question is like so why is there an equity risk, risk premium in theory if something always does more it, it that that should be arbitraged away and it's like the volatility of prices is is the general explanation and now humans grapple with them and handle them um, but so one of the other things that I've thought about a lot from my beginning in in involvement with the stock market is that. You know when you look at a lot of the great companies over time if you look at the market over time. Um, returns tend to be quite lumpy. Uh, if you look on a day-to-day -day basis, even in volatile times, things might look like they move a lot. But when you zoom out, the picture gets quite different. Um, so to like put this in another way, from uh, the beginning of 2018 to the middle of 2020, which is basically two and a half years, the S&P actually went nowhere. Though it went a lot of where, right? At one point, it was up like 15% from where it was at the beginning of 2018. And at another point, it was down like 20 some odd percent from where it was at the beginning of 2018. And, you know, in the day to day, in the minutia of it all, that really feels like a whole lot. Um, but, but it's really not in the grand scheme of things. It only took until kind of, uh, you know, the, the middle of 2020 when we, when we started pulling away from where we were at the peak of 2018. You look at a lot of great growth companies. They spend many years. Look at someone like Microsoft. You know, a lot of people like slinging a lot of blame on Bomber. And for what it's worth, some of that's probably pretty justified. But if you just take a step back and think about where valuations were exiting the dot-com bubble and what Microsoft had to deliver on to justify um, some of those lofty expectations, I mean, you got to work your way into that valuation before you can start achieving something more. And that's one of the reasons why returns tend to be, you know, what, I, what I'd call pretty lumpy. And that's one of our challenges as investors. Like, how do we both invest on a long time horizon and sit through stocks where at some points they'll be overvalued, at some points they'll be undervalued. Um, most of the time, they'll look like they're doing something on a day-to-day -day basis, but not really go anywhere in a given time. Technical analysts talk about things like a stock will break out and backtest a level, but when you really, you know, kind of cut through the jargon, to me, what that means is, you know, it goes up, it goes down, it's in the same place, and it takes a while to go somewhere. Another framework I think about it from is, 
you know, and I think getting older, it's been a little easier to zoom out on things. Um, but you know, when you're a, uh, call it a 25 year old, one year is about, uh, what would you call it? It's, it's something like 4% of your whole life. Um, but when you're 50 years old, it's half that impact. And so when you think about a year, when you think about how you get older, time seems to be going faster. It literally is insofar as it's relative to how old you are as a human being, right? To how long you've been around as a person. Um, so, you know, as you get older, it feels a little easier to kind of let time march on and do its thing. And I think that's one of the benefits that, um, you know, I think uh, one of the Michael Mobson uh, success equation chapters focused on at what age people achieve uh, their highest skill level in certain domains and their highest performance levels. And I do think there's something to be said about how like, you know, in your, in your, maybe I think in investing, it was something like the mid forties was, was the wheelhouse zone. I should have looked that up beforehand, the exact age, but it was something like the mid forties was where you achieve your highest level of performance output. And I think there's something to be said about the fact that you reach this certain level where you could zoom out. Like when I was younger, I really wanted, you know, I'd buy something and be like, God, why isn't it working now? What's, what's the problem? And I've come to take joy in some of these experiences that could be a little more tenuous from time to time that could be choppy, um, that feel like they're frustrating and where your tires are spinning. I'll give you a specific, specific example. Something like Twitter is a company that I've now been involved with for uh, five years, almost, almost five years, it's more like four and a half. And it's like felt along the way quite frustrating at times. It's been phenomenal. Early on, it looked phenomenal. Uh, in the March of last year, uh, you know, it looked, it was still ahead of the S&P for me in terms of my performance, but the sharp was way lower than the S&P. And now suddenly you have this like, you know, instantaneous uh, feeling of success in it, though it's taken a really long time to get there. Um, but effectively, when you think about it, I've been involved with this thing for four and a half years. The return is quite good. I've had opportunities to add to it, but almost all the return has happened within the course of a year. Um, so, you know, I, I don't necessarily have a specific point except for the general sense that the market itself, you know, moves around a lot. A lot of these moves are designed to influence how you think, how you act, how you behave. And by design, I mean in kind of the metaphysical sense. And, you know, it's our job to kind of cut through the noise of this all to focus on just the business itself. When I think about the beauty of the VC business, and I mean business, not investing in VC, um, you know, I think it's kind of nice to just have to go from one round to the next and not see the noise along the way. Uh, but there's a beauty in doing business with Mr. Market as we get to, because you have opportunities to kind of like, you know, get feed, feed into it. You you get certain situations and setups that you can't get in VC. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about the market, the lumpiness of returns, how you handle that, what you do to look past that. One of the things I've tried to train myself is to look at the portfolio a lot less, though being aware generally of if something's uh, happening with with some position, like why and what's driving it. Um, though I do think a lot of the industry spends a little too much time like seeing a big move and then kind of backfilling mentally exactly why that happened instead of saying, eh, I just don't know, maybe there was one big buyer today. Um, so curious on your guys' thoughts. And uh, you know, it's it's very much a tied to the behavioral uh, side of investing. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, I think the the thing that jumps out to me is is kind of what you said right there at the end, which is, how do you handle this on a day-to-day -day basis? Because everybody's subject to it. So 
you know, no matter where you fell over the last 12 or 13 months, there aren't very many people right now sitting around thinking like, well, I, I almost exactly matched the market. I, I had a very vanilla, you know, uneventful return. I just kind of like stuck to my knitting and, and was able to grind out some good returns. There's a lot of people that put up gaudy numbers and killed it. And there's a lot of people that have struggled. And on both sides of that coin, you're prone to making a lot of mistakes, right? Because the people that have killed it are prone to being super myopic about thinking what's just happened is going to continue and that what just worked is going to continue to work. And there are people on the other side that said, wow, I missed out on all this fun. I should throw some Hail Marys or do whatever to try to catch up and join the party. And I've got a lot of lost ground to make up and that sort of thing. So it's a huge problem. It's a huge risk. I'm certainly not immune to it. I think what you said, Elliot, is important for me anyway, which is that, you know, I spend a good part of my day actively trying to avoid market noise. So every morning, first thing, I'm broadly aware of what's happening, you know, what what futures are doing, what's happened in the world overnight, what's in the news, that sort of thing. And that's a, you know, 30 to 60 minute kind of exercise for me. I read maybe a little more. I, I generally read several newspapers, a lot of blogs, check Twitter, you know, have a have a scan around the markets and see what's going on. 98% of the time, that ends right there. And I go back to whatever it is that I'm trying to actually work on and get done. And I will do my best not to pay any attention to what's going on on a tick by tick, hour by hour kind of basis. So obviously, if I'm trying to actively buy or sell something, that would be different, but you know there are weeks and, and multi-month stretches where I don't actively make any changes whatsoever in the portfolio or in, in any investments that I hold. So um, I think that helps, right? I mean, I, I know a lot of people last year that only stayed sane because they adopted that strategy, right? It was like, all right, I'm going to do all of my thinking and research really early in the morning or in the afternoon and evening. And during the day, I'm going for a walk. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do something else because I can't sit here and, and watch the market bounce around. I'll, I'll lose my, my mind. And, and look, I think there are some people that are kind of pre-programmed to behave differently and they can sit there and stare at a screen and, and react minute by minute to it. But I think those people are all very much a securities first kind of investor, which gets back to my I should probably just rename everything that because it's like if if you're a securities first investor, everything I just said really doesn't apply. But if you're if you're an investor who's looking at the business in any way, shape, or form, and particularly looking at the business first to inform your opinion of what the securities may be worth, this is pretty valuable. But you know, beyond that, I mean, Elliot, I think it everything you brought up and it, it encapsulates so much. All the behavioral factors that you should care about tie into this. And it actually is part of what I'm going to talk about in a little bit. So um, it, it's such a broad subject. I I wish I had a more succinct way to sum it up. What about you, John? Yeah, I mean, it's been a huge issue for me and probably the thing that's held me back the most on my own investing journey has been um, exactly this. Whenever I look at my portfolio frequently, I tend to do much worse um, because there's more turnover. I don't want to see a down day uh, just instinctively, you know, so I've, I've been guilty of 
seeing one of my holdings, which I think is a core holding and a company I'm going to hold forever, have like a up 15 or 20% day on no news, and I sell it or I sell part mm -hmm. of it just because I feel like, well, it's probably going to drop 5% tomorrow and I don't <laughs> want to see that red. And then, you know, it, it, there have been cases where that leg up just continued and I saw myself get out of a position that I thought I'd hold for years where the, I was so sure of the thesis. And then what do you do? You know, when you sell on that up 15 to 20% on no news and then it goes up another 10% on no news the next day, what then? You know, and then I don't get back into it. And, and that has cost me a lot. So what I've really um, learned is that the less I look at the portfolio, the more I have a hobby or a day job that's not related to investing, the better I do uh, because I just don't have that temptation um, to try to kind of trade around core positions um, so this has just been huge and I'm still learning this, but I feel like I'm much closer to getting this right, uh, now than I ever was in the past, you know, little things like I have a few accounts with interactive brokers and, you know, for one account I'm using, um, the interactive brokers app on my mobile phone. And, you know, that's like, that's like the play account that I basically just use as a, you know, like someone might use a, 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 a gaming app and I have very little in there. And then the real accounts I don't actually look at. There's no app. They're kind of hidden in the background and I try not to access them for a long time. And boy, do they perform better. So I, I feel like really structuring and managing your environment to not uh, look at your portfolio uh, very frequently is kind of like if you want to eat healthy, don't keep unhealthy food in your kitchen because we all succumb to these human um, you know, weaknesses. And it's really about managing the environment uh, to, to, to the fullest so that we uh, stay true to our long-term goals. Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned that, John, because that's one of the things I was thinking about was how much harm, in my opinion, we can't, I don't know if you're ever going to be able to prove the counterfactual of what would have otherwise happened. But in my opinion, I think the behavioral research is quite clear that the instantaneous, always omnipresent ability to trade everything at all times via the phone in your pocket is going to be a huge net negative across the entire investor world. Because just like you said, I mean, your 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 anecdote about returns being better in your real account versus your you know go anywhere interactive brokers play account, however you want to frame it. I, I think that is consistent with other people, and I think that study at Fidelity that people have always referred to that the best returns were from people that died and you know or forgot they had an account. As far as I know, that's apocryphal. I'm not sure that's. Ever I was thinking of bringing that up, been, but didn't for that reason. Yeah. Yeah, I've looked into it. I, I certainly haven't found any evidence of it. If anybody out there has any sort of ability to verify that, that'd be great because I've actually looked and couldn't find it. It could well be true, but I think at this point it maybe 
more apocryphal than anything else, but I think the, the behavioral principles of it very much stand, right? So I think the point remains that, um, you know, it, unless you're one of the tiny fraction of people that is running a securities first kind of operation and you can pay exquisite minute by minute attention and not get sucked into the mistakes that come with that kind of myopia. And there are those people, right? I mean, I'm not disputing that. I just think that most of us aren't among them. And so if you're not among them, you're probably going to be hurt by having constant access to your portfolio, feeling every little up and down or, or just, you know, even taking a step back from that. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people I know that are not professional investors, or maybe they're kind of involved in finance and investing in the markets in a tangential way. And they told me both at the time and later, you know, boy, I opened up my accounts in March of 2020 and that really hurt. And that left them in a bad position, right? They were either emotionally fragile or they're extra scared or maybe they became extra greedy. Who knows? But I mean, it's just, it's such a fraught area. And and there's just, you know, there, there's so many behavioral principles that tie into it that you have to overcome. And and like like you said, John, I think you have to be aware of these sort of things and really structure the environment around you. It's going to, it's going to end poorly. I love that name you have securities first uh, investor, because I think it's both like, it's just such a good way to describe it. Um, you know, there are a couple things that I, I, there are some things we could learn from securities first uh, investors. One of the things that oh, I was thinking sure, about yeah. during the, um, you know, uh, call it the GameStop saga is you look at what the hedge funds who were having trouble owned and you follow some stocks and you see if anything on your watch list is there and you set some alerts way beneath the price um, or even throw out limit orders and see if you get hit. I got a sizable increase in one of my positions because I knew two two of the hedge funds that were in trouble had a blowout of this like I don't know, slightly less liquid smidcap cap company. And it was fantastic because the stock bounced back pretty quickly. Um, so we could like scrape those kinds of things. Um, one of the other things I think about uh, that I hear from a lot of value investors, like people, you know, who get a quick pop or who, you know, have this inclination to sell something that's up quickly. One of the problems that you run into is the framework uh, and, and construction of your thesis. So if at conceiving your uh, position, you think you have like a three to one risk reward, um, you know, thinking three to five years down the line, you're going to get something like a two to three X multiple of investing capital. Um, and, you know, you're willing to hold it down. So if, you know, in the coin flip of worlds, uh, the stock goes down, you know, call it 30% before it goes up, you know, uh, you, you're willing to hold it down 30%. But if you then sell it when it's up 15% really quickly and then move on to the next thing, you're kind of not realizing and actually ever letting true odds play out, though you are if the coin flip goes wrong first. So you're putting yourself in a position to, it's like, I, I don't know a name for it. It's like the op opposite of loss aversion. You're putting yourself in a position um, to kind of cap all your upside, but but handle and deal with all your pain. Um, and in a Kelly criterion framework, if you were to like um, use that to kind of define whether you do or don't make a wager, do or don't take a position, uh, it could leave you in, in a pretty um, sub-optimized, like call it betting framework. I hate using the word betting, but I don't know a better word for that, um, as an investor over time. 
Um, so that's one of the really hard things when you have like quick successes. Um, and it's also hard to know that, you know, the day you make a choice to invest in something is absolutely a coin toss on what it does next. Um, there's no way around that. Like you basically, you, you know, if, if you want to be a long-term investor instead of securities first, you have to understand and you have to accept that you might be, might look wrong before you're ever right. Um, you know, I've said this on the pod, I probably more than once already, but Roku, I was, I, I didn't have a single update and, and, you know, my first couple of weeks owning the thing, it was down 30% before I ever had a single update. Doesn't feel good. But when you look back on it now, you know, it's, it, it, it's quite different. Um, but yeah, those are some of the thoughts that, that kind of come together. Um, I, I don't know a way totally around it. I loved, uh, Guy Spear saying that, you know, he tries to look at his quotes once a week, but I think that's incredibly aspirational for someone like me. Um, but, you know, I, it's something that I think more people should talk about and should think about because I think the more you talk about it, just like with any problem, like the first step to addressing a problem is to acknowledge it exists as a problem. So the more we think about it as a problem, the more we kind of like, I don't know, you could put some mental uh, call them roadblocks in your process to give yourself a predisposition toward inaction in contrast to action. And so I've been able to take myself from having been a keyboard monkey at one of those trading desks to making no more than like, you know, a handful of call it two, two way transactions. I have to sell something to buy something because I don't have, you know, inflowing capital. So, but still, I, I still think of it as five decisions a year, um, but putting roadblocks, setting certain targets, even if they're not, like actual targets where, you you know, when I say 20% turnover, I think one of the things in Idea Week last week, last year that really helped me um, was I was I was pressed on the question of, do I really want to set that as an actual target? I'm like, the more I've come to think about it is I don't need it to be an actual target. What I need it to be is like a framework uh, and a signal that, you know, I, I really should confine myself to only a handful of moves a year. And, you know, that puts less pressure on, on making decisions and gives less impulse uh, opportunity to act on you. Yeah, one thing that really helped me with my own struggles in this regard, and I've always kind of considered myself a concentrated investor and kind of prided myself on that, that, you know, I'm not afraid to concentrate in my best ideas. And then I realized if I have a lot of turnover because something seems to be have worked out quickly, I am actually not concentrating through time. I'm kind of jumping from idea to idea. And inevitably, as you say, Elliot, you kind of end up on the your worst ideas because those are the ones that somehow just don't work out. And you're, you know, you you kind of basically sell out of your best uh, ideas too early to then settle with the ones that are not so good. And so just thinking about concentration, not just at a point in time, but through time has helped me deal with this because I want to own not so many companies over a good stretch of time because I feel now that that gives me the best chance to actually find the ones that are going to be big winners. Yeah, there's that's a good point. Point, John, I actually have an example of where that sort of framework led me astray because I can be pretty patient and sit tight for years on end, but where I've misdiagnosed the underlying opportunity or misweighed my own opportunity cost, it can ultimately be compounding my own mistake, basically. So when I first launched 
in 2013, uh, one of the first things I bought was the equity in a company that I had known for several years, and it had been involved in a bankruptcy after the financial crisis, and I had spent literally hundreds and hundreds of hours looking at it. And um, I just ended up selling it in 2020 because so many things had gone differently than I had planned on. But every step along the way, I thought, okay, well, this has changed, but this has also changed, and I'm going to give it a little more time, and I'm going to give it a little more patience. And I wasted, thankfully, I didn't really waste any money. I mean, I wasted a lot of opportunity costs because not only did it originally go straight up, it was kind of like the opposite of Roku, Mm. Elliot. It was like it went straight (laughs) up in the first, I don't know, six months I owned it. It was probably up 75%, and I thought it was still a little bit cheap to what it was going to ultimately be worth. So I didn't sell it. And then it went basically straight back to where it started. And for the next six years, it just bounced up and down in a relatively narrow range. And all it resulted in was a huge waste of time. I ended up selling it almost exactly where I bought it. And, you know, obviously I could have done a lot better with that. I hope anybody could over that period of time. So the opportunity cost was material, but even more than that was the return on brain damage. I mean, I think that that concept has picked up steam and it's a very valid one because I spent more time. I mean, at one point I actually spent a good part of my Christmas holiday in 20, what was that? 2015 or 2016. I'd have to think about it. Um, helping to find a new CEO for the company because there were a ragtag group of shareholders that were all involved. The board had kind of abdicated their responsibilities. It was just a total fiasco. I mean, everything about this company sucked. And I never threw in the towel when I should have because I was kind of myopically focused on on the wrong thing. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's taught me a lot of lessons, namely, like you said, John, that if it's not the kind of thing where um, I really see, you know, that multi-year potential and not just a reversion to what I thought the mean was supposed to be, or not just a, you know, a thesis that I had previously bet on or previously anchored on that isn't playing out, you know, it's time to just move on. I I really like that return on brain damage concept or like returns per unit of stress, because it definitely matters. And like bad decisions beget bad decisions, frustrations beget more frustration. It compounds on itself. And So, you know, when you have one thing not going right in your portfolio and it's taking up a lot of time and a lot of mental energy, you're more vulnerable. Um, You know, it's just not good. It's not healthy and it it doesn't help. You know, a mentor has impressed on me, like do stuff that makes you more narrowly define your universe of investable opportunities. You know, focus on only companies who you know fit your definition of uh, well, you know, I, I think there's a degree to which it, it applies more to my style, but like high quality, don't don't settle for companies that don't truly fit the bill. Um, though, you know, I mean, granted, everyone's got their own definition of quality. I've been told by more than a few people that Twitter is not quality, but, you know, there are certain qualities about it that I think... Uh, Uh, Sorry, not going to go down the Twitter tangent there. Um, But needless to say, you know, narrow your universe and end up with a with a field of companies who kind of avoid getting into that brain damage situation. Um, And I also, uh, you know, Phil, your experience brings to mind a quote I heard from uh, Mike Nongap this week which was something to the tune of if if you are an activist and you end up with a board seat, you failed miserably along the way. 
and it's like you really want to um, think about what success looks like when you start a position, when you get into a position, and when you're uh, when you're on your way there. And um, don't let the stock price determine that along the way and change your path and change the time frame over which you're measuring success too. Um, that's one thing. Like you know, on Twitter, I've had a couple of people be like, "Great job on on Twitter itself." Well, as far as I'm concerned, like I'm not judging for another three to four years. You know, let let it let it be determined over time if it truly actually worked. Uh, but price itself is just trying to influence you and trying to get in your head, try to get you to be cocky at times when you should be cautious, and try to get you to be scared at times when you should be greedy. And it's exactly the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. So it's hard, and that that, that that's our challenge, right? I think that's the hardest part of the job. You have to be very self aware too. Um, so I think exercises that promote self-awareness are quite helpful, um, whether it be meditation or exercise, whatever floats your boat, but something along those lines, I think is really helpful. Um, one thing that I've had as a rule of thumb that I think does work as well is, um, and you know, I think it works better in my framework of making a few decisions a year, but the day I make a decision is not the day I act on it. It's the next day that I act on it. Because if I don't wake up, uh, thinking that the prior days, like actual decision was right. I, I still have that out, but if I wake up and I feel inspired and I'm like, yes, let's go. Um, then, then I think that's a little more right. Um, there's something slightly spiritual about that, but I think there's some truth to like, you know, sleeping on things really does make you, uh, give, give you a degree of clarity that you otherwise wouldn't have. Um, so I'm trying to think of a couple more of my mental hacks to, uh, impose patience. But I think one of them is start very slowly with the company. Don't start with your full size position. Um, I know some people who say stuff like, you know, if it's not worth so-and-so percent position in my book, I'm not going to spend the time on it. But I think there's something to be said about how you feel once you own a stock and you see what does influence price. If you see the markets acting on all the wrong, like fundamental things like earnings report uh, reactions where the stock moves, you know, the opposite of what you'd expect. One of my worst mistakes ever was selling NVIDIA too early. And it was like, Every earnings call, it was like they destroyed their estimates because of uh, server and still PC was doing well. And every analyst was asking about Tegra, 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 Tegra this. And most of you who know NVIDIA today probably don't even know what the hell Tegra is. But it's like, you know, every time people are focused on the wrong things, you get interesting signal. Uh, and, and you start knowing about when it'll actually uh, start working for the stock and you get a better feel. Um, and you could maybe put on uh, that security's first hat at a certain point when when you feel that the inflection has actually happened in in how the market's perceiving these things. Um, I think there is that sort of room in there. Um, any any little hacks you guys have in that sense? No, I mean I would add real quick that you know even though I've spoken uh, a lot, maybe too much about business first versus securities first as a framework. I mean. I think the the reason I keep harping on it is just because I think it's important, and and I think it just creates a lot of mistakes when you don't explicitly acknowledge up front which of the two camps you're trying to live in. So I, but that said, I think there are a lot of things to learn from the other side. So even though I'm explicitly a, a business first investor, and I want to understand the business and try to figure out what the whole business is worth and where it's going, and you know evaluate the people involved and all that kind of good stuff. I mean, there are lots and lots of elements from the securities first camp that are valuable and, and worth thinking about. So I'm certainly not looking at technical analysis and charts per se, but I'm more than happy to acknowledge their utility in other landscapes. Or I'm perfectly happy to acknowledge the fact that I would look at things like um, 
you know, short interest, for example. If I'm looking at a company and I find out that a lot of people are shorted, I sure as heck want to understand why, right? And mm-hmm. chances are most of those most of those shorts are probably doing it on a different basis than I would be, shorting things on a different basis than I would be. But there again, when you're this is a, this is a bit upside down, but when you're short, you almost by definition have to be a kind of 50-50 business first, securities first, because you just can't short a lot of things until something starts to crack, right? So shorting is by definition more tied to the market and a more sweating it out day by day, hour by hour kind of thing. And you have to kind of make your thesis and do your homework and then lie in the weeds until something ruptures and then you pounce, right? So th- those are all perfectly valid intellectual frameworks. And and it's just like anything else. I mean, almost anything that's valuable and true about investing comes with a paradox. And this is one of them. 100%. I, I feel like there's so much psychology that goes into this, um, you know, how you evolve a position over time uh, that it's just, it, it's, it really is an art and it's an art in knowing oneself uh, because I've been there where, you know, I took too large of a position early on because I was excited and then got really scared uh, when it didn't seem to be working out. And uh, if you kind of don't go so big early on, it gives you a little bit more leeway to to stay clear-headed. Um, you know, somebody uh, I think tweeted something recently that I could uh, really uh, relate to, which was make the position size so that you are indifferent about the stock going up or down in the short term. Like if it goes down, you can add to it. Uh, if it starts going up, you don't feel like you have too little. Uh, that's kind of interesting. I don't know if that's actually possible, but I feel mm. like it's uh, you can kind of... You always have too little if it goes up, right? <laughs> true. Uh, yeah, but sometimes you really have too little, you know, like, <laughs> um, when it's not really moving the needle. But at other times, you can have too much to where if it starts going down, you're you're just getting worried instead of getting excited that you can actually, you know, increase the position. So, yeah, I don't have the answers, but I would like to believe that. I'm learning and getting that more right over time. Yeah, I agree. That's something I've definitely learned the hard way, you know, starting when I had to take responsibility for a portfolio and including every day up into the present that you have to have a framework in place for the portfolio and what you're willing to do, right? So for me, I'm not going to take a really tiny position and I'm certainly not going to put some absolutely enormous chunk of my capital, you know, that you see people occasionally put 50 or 75 percent of their capital into one idea and obviously people love to throw out sound bites about other great investors doing that sort of thing from time to time and and good for them but i think it's a really tough proposition if especially for managing other people's money to say i'm going to have 50 or 75 percent of my capital in a single security i don't care what that security is but so let's say i'm going to have position sizes between x and y and then to your point john if if you can't become detached and, and unemotional about what the price of that security is doing, it's a, it's a pretty good sign that something's wrong, right? Either that your position sizes are totally out of whack, you don't understand what's actually happening with the investing, you're too emotional from something else. Um, because again, I mean, I, you know, it, it's a paradox, but I, I want to, if, if I own something and the price has gone down, 
I'm going to double and triple down on my efforts to figure out why I might be wrong and what the price signal may be telling me. But if I'm choosing to make that active decision to own it in the first place, there's at least some good chance that the market is just wrong for whatever reason, right? I mean, like Elliot's Roku example, where it went down straight in his face for however many days in a row, and all of a sudden he wakes up and he's 30% underwater on the thing, but nothing had really changed. Nothing about that was necessarily relevant to the future. And so thank goodness he wasn't shaken out of it because he was, you know, uninformed or too emotional or whatever. So if he had if he had run face first into that 30% drawdown and been scared, that would have been a sign that he was either way too big or way unsure of what he was doing. And and on the flip side, to your point, every time something goes up, you don't own enough. And, you know, we've all had that feeling or all had been yelled at by people on that. I mean, that that is true. I mean, look, it's a huge it's a huge mistake to leave money on the table when you know what you're doing. I mean, Julian Robertson used to always say that that was the only thing that he was good at, right? That he wasn't right more than anybody else. He wasn't smarter than anybody else, but he was among the best at really pouncing when he was right and really doubling and tripling down. I mean, sometimes it's really, really hard to buy more of something when the price has gone up, but that's, could be the right answer and be the most profitable possible decision you could ever make. And so it's something you have to learn. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm glad you mentioned the Julian Robertson example, because there's also like a Soros had a similar thing. He know he would know he's right before the market would know he's right. He'd make a lot of bets and he'd have a thesis on a lot of different things at once. But when he was right, he knew it really fast. Um, and I have a mental hack for that too. When I start with a smaller position and it goes up and I want to buy higher, um, a lot of people anchor to their original price and they're like, oh, I can't pay this price. What I think is, what, what, what I try to do is knowing what I know now, what price would I be happy with if I had the chance to buy it again and buy up to where my average price gets to that point or up to where a position is kind of, you know, at my ceiling size. But that's a mental hack to be able to buy higher without thinking about the price you're paying right there, but what your total price is on the total position size where you can live with and be happy with knowing everything you know, that that price is the right one for you. Um, it's not perfect, but I think it's a good... I, I think I do find mental hacks to be quite helpful in that sense because so much of this is behavioral and psychological. So, so that's one that I take. Um, and then, you know, just... To bring up, I, I saw a great tweet from Bill Brewster, I think it was yesterday or the day before. It was, uh, my grandma 31X'd her Coke investment. What's the saying? Time in the market is greater than timing the market. So like back to where I started this conversation, most of the time stocks do nothing. You know, there's this general you know, kind of tailwind that stocks have over the very long term. And if you get a good one, that tailwind's going to be even better than the tailwind stocks and aggregate have. But then when you look back, you could probably say even, you know, most of the return happened in a few very very small number of the days. Like, you know, think think maybe like one, less than one tenth of the days were actually meaningful to the return, with most of the days canceling out one another. So, you know, that's that's one of the hard parts of this all. Um, you could be wrong for a long time, and then suddenly, you know, just over the course of a couple of weeks, you end up very right. Um, and I think that's the beauty of this all too. I just saw a great. I apologize for forgetting where I saw it, but somebody sort of speculated in jest that you could explain all of Renaissance technology's returns by the fact that instead of like day traders 
trading furiously all day and closing their book to zero effectively by the end of the day. Anyway, backing up a step, the, the point of this research was that like some enormous percent of the market's total return over the years was actually accrued while the market was closed, mm-hmm. right? So market moving news came out at night, early in the morning, over the weekend, whatever. And so you weren't necessarily even given an opportunity to trade on that information. You had to have already owned it going into that, to your point about time in the market rather than timing of the market. And that maybe you could explain Rentech's you know, amazing returns <laughs> in its partner's fund by just having done the opposite of the day traders book, which is going levered long the market at close and then, and then undoing that at the <laughs> open the next morning. Kind of funny. That was one of the one hints in uh, the Man Who Solved Markets. I think is the name of the book. That you know, the first uh, forty-five minutes of the day is the greatest inefficiency too. So I mean, that's probably onto something. Yeah. Not gonna lie. Yeah, or like post-earnings announcement drift. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a well-observed uh, phenomenon as well. Well, let's uh, move on to uh, you, Phil, for our second uh, topic, which I know relates to what we were been talking about already. Yeah, it sure does. Thanks, John. So I thought today I would tackle a, a project that I've alluded to on here before, which was, <clears throat> excuse me, what a, a talk that I gave actually at your conference, John, in 2016 or 17. I'd have to go back and check. It seems like a lifetime ago now. But um, I basically took the famous Charlie Munger speech that he gave in, I think, 1994 for the first time, The Psychology of Human Misjudgment, where he goes through a couple dozen very prevalent, insidious psychological biases and walks through what they mean, what the implications are, and then tries to tack on some some vivid examples to drive them home. And so he uses things that he drew from his own experience and from, you know, the news of the past few years and decades at that point. And so my thought in doing this, uh, you know, about four or five years ago was just that it's first of all, if, if anyone hasn't listened to it, and, and hopefully there's nobody listening to this podcast that's unaware of that, but if there's anybody out there that hasn't listened to it, their podcast talk, it's on YouTube. You can find a transcript. It's in Poor Charlie's Almanac. So it's it's all over the place. But if there's anybody that's unaware of that talk, they should go and find it immediately, like right now, stop whatever you're doing. It's It's one of the most uh, interesting, impactful things I've ever come across. I've probably listened to the audio version literally dozens of times. I've read it at least five to 10 times, if not more. It it truly encapsulates so much about investing from the behavioral sense. And and it's amazing too, because it was actually done before a lot of the foundational work in behavioral psychology that, or at least before some of it had been published um, by people like Kahneman and Tversky that, you know, went on to win a Nobel prize for good reason. Uh, So it it really was ahead of its time. So my idea was just that this is the greatest thing ever, and it'd be even more useful to the current generation coming up if we could update the ideas in it to, you know, make them more applicable and and make them more salient to people living in today's world rather than, you know, thinking about things that happened 30 and 40 years ago. Um, So in the spirit of the uh, investment checklist principles and quotation stuff that we talked about last week, where I we put those in the show notes and I shared them on Twitter and and hopefully they find people find something useful out of that. This is even more useful. This has almost no possible caveats or drawbacks. And so I thought I would also use it as a chance to go out to people and ask for their ideas about 
new examples I can use to rework this. And I don't know when I'll actually get to rewriting and updating the document. I will share the transcript of the document or the the manuscript that I prepared from from four or five years ago, and, and people can read that. And then at some point later this year, I'll go through it and add even more examples because for better or worse, my goodness, the past few years, just going back through from when I wrote it, have provided a lot of vivid stuff. Um, so to give to give people a flavor of, of kind of the concepts and the, the topics that are in there, if they're not aware, uh, and as I look at them, I mean, again, one of the principles of this is that you get the craziest results, things like GameStop, when three or four of these five, three or four or five of these factors all combine and start pushing in the same direction. So things like commitment and consistency tendency, where you have some sort of held belief or you've made some sort of commitment and it's just hardwired into the human brain to want to stick with that and not to reverse yourself, not to, you know, admit that you were wrong, not to look foolish. And that is just an absolute, another way to frame it is inconsistency avoidance, right? Humans have an enormous pain that's caused by feeling inconsistent that they've somehow been inconsistent. Anchoring, you know, pricing, in the market is a huge issue here where, you know, people are often led totally astray by thinking the price was here, now it's higher or lower. All I have to do is is just wait and we'll somehow revert to this magic level. And that really has nothing to do with it. I mean, the the most the worst anchoring effect is is almost always your previous conclusion, right? If your previous conclusion was, I don't understand this, right? Or I, I've missed this. It's gone up too much in price. It's, it's, I've, I'm too late to the game or I've already made a lot of money in this. So what could go wrong or anything like that? You know, I, whatever your previous conclusion was is probably the, the most likely source of your next mistake. And so if you're just constantly trying to tear down your, your previous decisions and your previous conclusions and not anchoring to anything, you're going to be way ahead of the game. Uh, simple psychological denial where, Something has just gone wrong. You, you you believed something, something really traumatic and painful has happened and you just can't even cope with it. It's just simple human nature. We're all subject to it. Reciprocation tendency or, or the, the Kantian fairness principle, revenge is, is all tied together. Um, you see that on an almost daily basis now, unfortunately, in, in all sorts of realms of life. Bias from over-influenced by social proof. You could also say social media, even though that didn't really exist when this originally came out. In, namely, just the conclusion of others, right? So w- you see this in all sorts of tribal behaviors from politics to sports to uh, all sorts of petty social cliques and all that kind of stuff. So you you have... And by the way, that's exaggerated and and taken to a, an extreme when it's under conditions of uncertainty or stress. Uh, it can really get out of control. And then lastly is, is deprival superreaction, which is the basic core fundamental principle behind all gambling, right? And this is one of my big problems with something like Robinhood is that they have they're very smart about what they've done. I mean, it's the same principle as a slot machine that has you put in a few quarters or a few dollars and it's bar, bar, lemon, right? That's not a mistake. They're trying to make you feel like you've just missed, right? You've If you had just gotten in a little earlier, if you'd stick with it a little longer, you will finally get that big jackpot. And that is an enormously powerful concept that, that I think people need to really be aware of. So some of the examples... Um, I mean, there's some really good ones that are already in there. I mean, one that came up the other day when I was talking to somebody about sports, Elliot, I know 
you like sports. John, you'll appreciate this too. Um, I know your son plays soccer, football. Um, there's, there's a guy named Carlos Kaiser, his original, he's a Brazilian player from the eighties and nineties. His birth name was like Carlos Raposo. But back then it was coming out of the age when Franz Beckenbauer was one of the best players in the world. And he was known as the Kaiser. So this guy, Carlos Raposo renamed himself and started referring to himself as the great Carlos Kaiser. And he created this whole shtick around himself where even though he literally never played a minute at any meaningful level of football, he was such an engaging personality. He had the perfect look of a Brazilian superstar from that era, everything from his you know, physical stature down to his perfectly coiffed mullet. You know, he would he would befriend these very powerful players and make sure that he took them out. He'd party with them. He'd become friends with their families. Uh, he would actually court and sometimes pay off journalists to write favorable things about him in the press. Um, and he perpetuated a scam on the basis of this, whereby he'd never proved even once that he was capable of playing. He'd roll in on a new short-term contract. And within, you know, the first training session, he'd inevitably pull a hamstring or something and he'd spend the next six months on the bench, you know, being the best teammate you could ever imagine, but never putting anything out on the field because he was incapable of it. Right. But this fraud went on for 20 years where this guy made unbelievable amounts of money. Every big club in Brazil, particularly in Rio, took a chance on him because they'd all buy into this same gambit over time, right? I mean, it's just unbelievable how powerful the psychological principles was. And, and the, he said his guiding principle in life was that um, life is all marketing, right? That's what he would tell himself over and over again. It's just life is marketing. And, he, you know, he got all of these unbelievably successful people that, that played this game at the highest possible level and they couldn't see through his BS. And it's just fascinating. So anyway, moving on to more commonplace examples today, more recent examples of today. Obviously, what just happened with GameStop has to be included in, in the 3.0 version of this talk. You know, everything, there have been a lot of examples, unfortunately, coming out of the pandemic, coming out of the recent political environment. Uh, Wirecard, the massive fraud in Germany, uh, is a good example. Joe Lowe and the billion-dollar whale scandal in Malaysia is a fascinating example. I mean, Joe Lowe is basically the Carlos Kaiser of, you know, the, the finance and international development world, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty stunning. Um, the 737 MAX fiasco at Boeing has a lot of echoes to, to prior situations where just three or four or five psychological factors. I, I mean, again, my personal opinion, having read it as a non-expert, is that no one ever woke up at Boeing. We talked about this. No one ever woke up at Boeing and said, I'm going to commit some sort of act and cut corners and do things wrong. It was a bunch of psychological mistakes that all compounded on themselves. Uh, you know, the same thing I think happened at Valiant and Enron and everywhere else. So anyway, I just thought I'd open it up to where people can submit any sort of example where they read through these psychological principles and say, oh yeah, that's exactly what happened here. And, you know, you name the company or the situation or the, you know, the example in real life. And, and, and when you do that, instead of, you know, becoming prey to it, when you become more aware of that, um, of those principles and those biases and tendencies, it helps to make you almost more immune to them, right? And, it, and the more you study them, the more self-awareness you have, because I should, I should give the, the due credit to this. Um, Jason Zweig helped me a good bit with this. You know, he's not only 
kind of the the dean of all investing journalism. He helped Danny Kahneman write Thinking Fast and Slow. I don't think a lot of people know that. He should get more credit for that. And he said, you know, as it pertains to this project that, you know, having spent however many decades it is now studying the great investors like Buffett and, and Munger, it's not so much that they have a lot of the advantages that a lot of people often attribute to them, even though they do have those advantages, but maybe their biggest advantage is that they know who they are and they're comfortable with who they are and they don't stray from their own abilities. They don't stray from their own knowledge and they're just not, you know, hurting themselves. I mean, again, I've always thought that one of the most important and overlooked uh, lines in the intelligent investor, you know, gets so many sound bites and whatever out of that is that the investor's chief problem or even his own worst enemy is likely to be himself, right? Ben Graham wrote that seven or eight decades ago, and it's never been more true than today. And so by studying all of these um, little bits of psychology that, that generate human misjudgment, I think you can be less of your own worst enemy going forward. So I'll leave it there. And if you guys have any uh, examples that jump to mind, I'll add them to the list and hopefully include them in a, in a future edition. And then we'll put it out on the show notes and people can chime in there too. Oh, that was fantastic. So good. So interesting. I had a look up Carlos Kaiser while you were talking just to see that mane of hair. Um, it's great, right? <laughs> the story is fantastic. Oh my God. I mean, 20 years of that. Um, you know, and I was thinking it's, it's, it's nice you tied it back to like Jolo and in investing, but like there are at least a handful of those kinds of characters in our industry. Um, sure. And, uh, you know, it's definitely a little scary to think about because it's, it's that much easier to pull off in finance and investing than it is in, in athletics, uh, where, I mean, especially now at, at some point you got to show the goods. One of the ones that I think about, and I don't know how to phrase it, but one that I'd really love to add. I mean, I was thinking about a lot, just the last couple of days, the amount of times I've heard the word super app. And it gets me thinking about the use of the word flywheel in like investor presentations. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'd call one. it like these vapid, meaningless words that could be used and interpreted however anyone wants in any different context, where maybe once they served a purpose and had an actual point, but they just start getting used in such, I, I don't know, cascading ways where it snowballs into something that just loses loses any sort of grounding. It's yoga babble. Uh, what, what did you call it? It's yoga babble, right? We yoga babble, it. yes. Yeah. So you're right. Yeah, I, have a, I actually have a friend who wrote his entire letter about flywheels and how just completely bastardized that whole <laughs> concept has become. Right, like it's an interesting, it's a good concept and all, but the way companies use it over and over, it's like I yeah. don't even, right. when, when I hear it, it's not even like, that's not a flywheel. <laughs> what are you talking yeah, right. about? Right. Um, yoga babble, I love it. I love it. That's one I, I, I feel like I encounter increasingly often. Definitely going to have to brainstorm on some more of these. Those are fantastic. I love the one on inconsistency. It gets me thinking way back to the um, you know, 2004 election where John Kerry was accused of being a flip-flopper. Oh my yeah. God. Like It's a great thing to be able to like look at something and be like, I've actually changed my mind on that. I, I feel like that's something that people should be praised for. <laughs> repeatedly. It's not a, not a bad thing at all. I mean, I'd rather you uh, change your mind than go head first into a, a terrible idea because you committed to it beforehand. Isn't it um, amazing how quickly that can swing back and forth, right? I mean, just a few years later, it was viewed as a cardinal sin if you didn't blow in the wind with what whatever was popular. And yeah, it's just unbelievable. 
Yeah, and I think there's this strain of thinking in tech world that kind of takes the other side of it too far, this like strong ideas loosely held concept where you're like so passionately arguing something and then you're like, actually, nah, I don't, I don't think that's the case. Um, you know, there's a good middle ground between the two. I mean, maybe like just take a more nuanced approach to the world and be open-minded. That's, uh, that's good, but it doesn't have to be a strong idea. Yeah, one of the things that drives me the most nuts on Twitter is the the not just yoga babble, but the pseudo psychological babble that comes out a lot of. Uh, and again, I'm going to criticize by category and not name <laughs> names, but it, it tends to be extra concentrated among very wealthy tech entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. That it it does not matter what the subject is; they've got some vapid pronouncement that is just going to solve all the world's problems if you will just let that soak in a little more. And it's just, it's mm-hmm. so ridiculous and infuriating. And like you said, I don't think, it's kind of funny because it, I feel like on this topic, there's a handful of people, Jason Zweig, and not just the foundational people that have practiced this, but people that have called this stuff out for years and years and years. Like chances are, if you're if we're talking about something, there's a Jason Zweig article or something about it, like the Devil's Financial Dictionary or a Michael Mobison paper or whatever. But just today, Jason Zweig was put something up that said, you know, what's one term or phrase that a lot of people use where the speaker himself really has no clue what it means? And it was it was pretty funny because people were actually saying flywheel was one of them. Yeah. yeah, I could see that. And to the the same people that you're talking about, like all these ideas that are incredibly contrarian, yet every single one of their friends think exactly the same way. <laughs> yeah, that's a good example, yeah. Um, I have encountered that on a couple specific things lately. And it's like, come on, man, it's not contrarian if all your friends think the same way. I mean, you're all thinking the same way, coming at it from the same angle. Maybe be exposed to why, you know, that might not be right or as easy as you say. Yeah. Um, you know, specifically, I've heard that a lot with like, why couldn't the FDA approve the vaccine the day after uh, Moderna figured it out? It's like, no, th- there's a pretty damn rational explanation. It's not some sort of anti-tech bias. <laughs> yep. But that's a tangent. Sorry. But the, but I, I think that is a kind of thinking that's kind of perverse and, and a little too common. Um I, yeah, another one, there's reflex, reflexive contrarianism is something that I've encountered is a name that I'd call it where certain people are, you know, made, made their reputation with something contrarian. So they, they try to take a contrarian angle to everything, even where there isn't one that exists. Um, and I think investors kind of fall guilty to that too, because every one of us, you know, to want to beat the market means you want to be right about something that the market's wrong by definition. So you think you're contrarian in some ways, but that that's hard. That's hard. Um, hard to have an angle that's contrarian to everything. hundred percent. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And I think you're especially, that's why I said, I think one of the things I've really learned to appreciate over the years is your most dangerous assumption is often based on your previous conclusion, right? So I've seen tons of people, myself included, get things horribly wrong right after they just got something right. So I learned this thankfully quickly and not too painfully, but you know, I think I've talked about this on here before. When I started in this business, I was I was assigned through random luck to cover financial companies in 2007. <laughs> and and okay. because we were in a long short hedge fund, I ended up just saying, you know, look, 
this is going bankrupt. This is going to zero. This is overvalued. So we we shorted a million different things and made a ton of money in 2008. And on the basis of that, opened a short-only fund in 2009. <laughs> that was not my idea. I wasn't the one who was solely responsible for it by any stretch. But you know, I, I saw that play out over and over again, where people that made tons of money off of the big short, so to speak, just kept trying to reinvent the big short. I mean, remember when Meredith Whitney came out and was going to short every municipal credit for the next, you know, mm-hmm. it's like everybody just tried to reinvent what had just worked and being contrarian all the time, like you said, is by definition not going to work, right? You have to pick your spots and be contrarian when it makes sense and when the odds are actually favorable, not just because it sounds cool. Mm-hmm. That's a strong point because your your most vulnerable weaknesses come immediately after your strengths and there should be a name for that. I know Kahneman talked about the the exper- or the the research he did on Israeli Air Force pilots in training, I think, yep. where you yep. know there was no correlation between praise and subsequent performance. Yeah. There, there, uh, there should be a name for that. <laughs> there probably is. I'm blanking on what the concept might be referred to in the academic literature, but yeah. well, I'll volunteer a suggestion. It could be something like God complex. <laughs> <laughs> because right. uh, do you know how that resonates with me? Because literally, like, I made the biggest mistake of my investing career right after having my biggest win. And I mean, I cringe when I think back at my thought, what was going through my head after that biggest win. But I was like, you know, that whole um, thing about thinking and probabilities. Well, God doesn't think in probabilities, right? I mean, God knows what's going to happen. So why should I be thinking in probabilities? I mean, it was literally that level of hubris. And of course, then, uh, you know, what happened next, which was like just blowing everything I had just made on an idea where I thought I was so smart and actually I wasn't. Um, So uh, that's one example. But Phil, thank you so much for mentioning Carlos Kaiser because now I have a plan B for my son. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You have to have a lot of attributes that, you know, were very special. You got to really play the role, right? I mean, it's truly marketing (laughs) and acting. I mean, he's going to have to get a, you know, a a stylist and a publicist and he's going to have to get (laughs) get a lot of things, so... Yeah, well, that's a skill in and of itself. It um, sure is. No, it's very real. Yeah, I mean, whether it's a con artist of athletic, you know, endeavors or business endeavors, I mean, look, the ability to sell is a very much a skill in and of itself, and it can be used for good and it can be used for bad. Yeah, um, but you know what you said about Munger being actually so far ahead of uh, his time and ahead of kind of the. Uh, prevailing uh, wisdom in academic economics is just so spot on. I mean, I've thought a bunch of times in the past that if you're a PhD student or, or something like that, you could literally just take ideas from Munger, wrap them into like PhD style papers and get professorships or ultimately the Nobel Prize uh, because he was just so spot on about a lot of these things. Um, and I feel like it's so useful to be aware of this um, as a defensive strategy, basically. Um, you know, I feel like 
where I have a little bit of a problem with some of these things is that you take some of the leading business schools in the country and they're actually teaching these things as offensive weapons. And I would argue we're now seeing it with used with things like Robin Hood and, and others, but basically things like social engineering, neurolinguistic programming and stuff like that. Like it's good to be aware of these things, but it's like, you know, supplying defensive weapons to a country, let's say giving them anti-tank missiles versus giving them tanks that could be used offensively. I just find that, you know, those who have the power to kind of uh, teach these things should be a little bit more aware of how those things are going to be used. Um, and then one other comment on just this, uh, you know, things like flywheel. And, and I have another example, which is Fortress Balance Sheet. And um, I, I, I think uh, somebody, Daniel Gladish, tweeted about um, Jamie Dimon perhaps using that for the first he's been time. Using about, that no, he's been using that a lot. I mean, he's been referring to that for several years at least. Yeah, yeah, using that. And, and you know, I, I, I guess it applies to JP Morgan, but I've heard um, companies talk about a fortress balance sheet in their investor presentations where they don't actually show the balance sheet. And then you go to their SEC filings and it's like, whoa, there's a bunch of debt. There's, you know, it's not a fortress balance sheet, but it gets used so much. Um, So that's that's just uh, another. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, we talked about the corporate claptrap concept and baloney detection kits and all that a couple of weeks ago. And um, I thought that was actually a fascinating discussion. And that probably does deserve its own uh, line item or, or chapter in this presentation because, yeah, the use of vapid, meaningless language, yoga babble, psycho babble, all this kind of nonsensical garbage uh, really does utilize a lot of the other psychological concepts to often a nefarious end. So I think it's worth studying. I mean, I, frankly, I would put non-GAAP financial metrics in there, right? And I think the argument in favor of non-GAAP financial metrics is that they can be used by companies with good intentions to explain the business as they see it, as as agents and principals, hopefully, of the business that they're trying to steward to the best possible long-term results. But we all know that non-GAAP financial metrics often venture into the absolutely absurd and the downright, you know, malignant use of misleading numbers. And so I would put that in the same category of, of you know, the vapid, meaningless language that could be so misleading. And, and it, it ties into other psychological principles. It's not necessarily a standalone principle, but definitely something to take note of. Yeah, it's interesting. All of them start with a rational basis and an effective path to helping simplify and tell the real story and all of them kind of evolve in purpose to something that's far removed from where they initially started yeah that's exactly right i mean it's the slippery slope concept right i mean it's just i don't care whether it's garbage financial reporting or outright fraud i mean the vast majority of misdeeds and bad behavior do not start out as intentional, right? It's like all of a sudden you wake up and go, oh my gosh, how did I get here? You know, and it's, well, you you did one little thing and then you have the inconsistency tendency creep up and, and you don't want to reverse yourself. So you just keep going a little bit further and a little bit further and a little, little bit further and you end up in a really bad place. Yeah, and of course it has often to do with incentives, right? Where sure. 
you just have an incentive to not really think rigorously about what is the best metric to use, but you want to use the most favorable looking metric. Um, so, you know, it's like an idea, a good idea pushed too far can become a bad idea um, because gap isn't necessarily the best, but it is standardized. Uh, but if you're just using Gap, you would have missed out on a lot of great value creators like an Amazon, like a Netflix, like some John Malone companies probably. Uh, so there's definitely value to non-Gap measures, but it's just when you couple um, just the complete ability to define those in any way that a management team wants, you couple that with their incentives you get a lot of uh, really, really uh, meaningless and vapid uh, and misleading uh, financial measures. Yeah, exactly. I, I didn't mean to imply, it's a good clarification, I'm glad you brought that up, because I didn't mean to imply that there's one single truth in accounting. I mean, accounting, even in a more extreme fashion than in investing, does not have any absolute answers. This is in physics and accounting more than just about any other practice or profession requires an enormous, an enormous amount of judgment. But to your point, you know, whether it's IFRS or GAAP, uh, you know, these the, are accounting standards boards that are by no means perfect, but they get a lot of the big things right. And by standardizing it, they allow a clearer, more uniform picture to play out. And, and so, yes, it's going to create all sorts of weird distortions and weird results. But my opinion would be that by doing it that way, rather than just allowing a effectively a free-for-all where the rules aren't enforced and anyone can use non-GAAP metrics to mislead at their, you know, because again, they're not even necessarily trying to mislead because they're bad people. It's incentive caused bias. I mean, if you had to rank these issues of psychology on the psychology of human misjudgment, incentive caused bias would be right up there at the top, right? I mean, it is right there at the very heart of what makes people human. And so this is, you know, non-GAAP financial metrics are just a tool uh, to enable incentive caused bias to metastasize and all sorts of crazy stuff. You put that so well, man. Perfect. Well, on that note, guys, thank you so much for another great discussion. Really enjoyed this, and I hope all of our listeners did as well. Till next week, take care. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.